if you would, bow your heads as we go to the Lord again in prayer together. Father, um, we just sang a prayer to you, and so I'm going to repeat part of that prayer. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us and build up your church in a more fuller knowledge of your word and with greater love for you, our covenant-keeping God, who pursues unfaithful people like us. I thank you for Jesus, who left heaven to come to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Right. Well, this morning, 1 Corinthians 7 has brought us to yet another topic that can be really challenging and even painful for us, depending on what you have walked through in your life. This week, the topic is divorce and remarriage. What I plan to do this morning is try to give you all a biblical roadmap to use as you navigate what the Bible has to say about divorce and remarriage. One thing that's really challenging about this topic, and many of you may be aware of it, is that churches and Christians don't all agree on what the Bible says about this topic. And there even have been what I would say would be some unfortunate translations of a few key verses um, in the Bible that have not go done well in helping some of these perhaps um, varying views. So, in other words, different translations may make you land in one place or another, depending on which one you're using. So what I've done this morning, I don't know if uh, it got out to everybody, but Hopefully most of you have one. If somebody has one near you, I, I passed out a handout that has um, the, the translations that I'm going to be reading from. And uh, it's got highlights and arrows going every which way. And hopefully as we go on, you'll see. Basically what I'm trying to show is where all these different texts quote each other. All these passages use each other, quote each other. And you're seeing... They all quote Deuteronomy 24, so we're going to be looking at that in a little bit. What I'm going to do first is I'm going to work through 1 Corinthians 7 and see what that passage has to say about this topic since we're in 1 Corinthians. Second, I'll talk about the fact that marriage is a covenant, a covenant relationship. Third, I'll unpack the idea that the marriage covenant can be broken by human behavior and not just by the death of one party. So, death does break a marriage covenant. The Bible makes that very clear, Romans 7, and even in our passage today. But there are some other activities that break the covenant at its very core. We'll look at that. And then finally, as we conclude, we'll see how the good news of the gospel presents us with hope for covenant breakers. We have a God who never breaks covenant with us. And he always holds out his hands to human covenant breakers and gives the constant plea of the Old Testament prophets. Return to me. Return to me. Return to me. Repent and return. And so as we close, we'll see that though divorce is permitted because of human sin, the people of God but to imitate the Lord in striving for covenant renewal when possible. Divorce is what happens when the plea, return to me, is refused again and again. So, let's get started. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16, and verse 39. Paul writes this, To the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, 
If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by, his, by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And then a verse that's related to this topic. Paul kind of does a long detour. And then if you look down to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. I shouldn't say detour. He stays on topic, but he talks about something else. He says... A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, if her husband dies, she is free to be remarried, married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. So let's dive into these verses. Divorce and remarriage in 1 Corinthians 7. As Paul kicks off this discussion here in 1 Corinthians, he starts by quoting our Lord Jesus, or at least his summary of what we have Jesus on record saying in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So look at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. And here's Paul's summary of Jesus. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, even though Paul uses the words divorce and separate or leave here, they mean the same thing. Back in that day, a separation meant something different than it means today. Sometimes today, right, couples may separate to try to work on things separately. And then the hope for many is that they can work on different issues and come back together. Um, but... Back then, separation meant divorce. When you left, that was a divorce, and legally. And sadly, most marriages in the Greco-Roman world of that day, most marriages actually ended in divorce. I mean, you think of divorce today as on the rise, although I think it's kind of plateaued because, simply because people aren't just just aren't getting married anymore. But back then, it was an epidemic. And in that day and age, you could divorce your wife for any reason that you would want to, or vice versa. And so Paul quotes the radical words of Jesus. Wives and husbands ought not divorce. And if a spouse does separate, get divorced, then they ought to remain unmarried or be united, reunited. Because in God's eyes, they are still married. To break a marriage covenant so that you could go marry someone else. And here Paul's tapping into the words of Jesus. If you just break off your marriage covenant with the motive of, I want to go marry someone else, that's adultery with a legal stamp of divorce. Like, I want to cheat on my wife, right, with someone else, so I'm going to divorce her so I can do it. That's... That's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew, and that's what Paul is assuming. So if you do separate, you must remain unmarried, so that the motive should not be to be with someone else. But it gets more complex than that, and Paul's going to tackle that. We'll look at Jesus' words in a little while. Here, Jesus and Paul are talking about the same kind of divorce. An illegitimate divorce pursued with the goal to marry someone else, which is just legal adultery. And again, this was rampant, not just in the Roman world, but in the Jewish world as well. And the Jews had their favorite verse, their go-to verse, to say that Moses was okay with this as well. So we'll look at that. So Paul begins his discussion by reminding the Corinthians what Jesus said about it. Then he weighs in with his own authoritative word as an apostle. 
on what Christians should do if they find themselves in a couple situations that Jesus himself did not talk about. What about those who find themselves married to someone who's not a Christian? You can imagine, for example, a young Christian woman in the church who's just been told by Paul back in verses 1 to 6 that she should be engaged in regular marriage relations with her husband, but she knows that her husband is not being morally pure with his body because he's not a believer. He's not living in allegiance to Jesus. So the question might naturally arise, is this lady defiled when she joins with him in one flesh? Should she instead flee from him along with her children lest she be defiled by his immorality? <coughs> or another situation, how about somebody who becomes a Christian and then gets divorced by their unbelieving spouse. Are they not allowed to remarry in the Lord? Does God view them as still married when they're not the ones that broke the covenant? Listen to what Paul says next, verse 12. But I, not the word, say to the rest. So Jesus didn't talk about this. doesn't make it any less significant what Paul has to say here. He's saying Jesus didn't, he's not quoting Jesus anymore. If any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must, must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified or made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified or made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. So two scenarios here that the Apostle Paul is tackling. In the first one, uh, a, a person is married to an unbelieving spouse. So they've become a Christian, right? And their spouse is not a Christian. Paul says, don't leave them to marry someone else. Like, maybe you say, well, I'll just break up this marriage and go marry a Christian now. Right? Logical. And Paul's saying, no. Don't be the one to initiate the divorce. Jesus' words apply directly in this situation. And if you are worried that relations with your unbelieving spouse will defile you because of the sinful things you're choosing to do, it's actually the opposite. Your relationship with them will have a sanctifying effect on them and on the children that you have with them. Now, these verses can be a bit of a head-scratcher. Does that mean that the lost husband or wife or the kids actually get saved from their sins by touching this believer apart from faith in Christ? No, this is like some sort of sanctification that happens just by being married to somebody. What's, what's, what's going on here? Remember in chapter 6, Paul told Christians that they were holy and sanctified. That their bodies were the temple of the Holy Spirit. Back in the day, if you brought something unclean into the temple, that would defile the temple. But now, Jesus has reversed the process. Remember when Jesus touched the unclean woman? Who got clean? The woman. Jesus didn't become impure and unclean, all right? Jesus had what's called contagious holiness. He touches people, and instead of getting sick, he, get, he makes them clean. And this is the idea here. This, this believing spouse, they don't get defiled by having a one-flesh relationship with someone who's not living for Jesus. Instead, that person is, experiences a cleansing effect when they have contact with the believing spouse so that this person is not unclean to touch. The Christian who has been cleansed by Christ is not defiled by a marriage union to someone who doesn't know Christ. And in many instances, the spouse may actually come to faith in Christ. Though we'll see in a minute, not not always a guarantee. 
Paul says, your union doesn't make you unclean. And there's another situation that would have been quite common. What if the unbelieving spouse leaves? Now remember, when someone left in that culture, that's a divorce. Leaving meant divorce. And so what Paul is saying is that if your unbelieving spouse divorces you, look at verse 15, you are not bound. This language of not being bound would almost certainly have been understood in that context as having been freed from the obligations of the marriage covenant and thus freed to remarry. For example, look at verse 39. We see the same language at the end of chapter 7. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. Bound to the covenant. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. So the marriage covenant binds, but then when the husband dies, she is free. So back in verse 15, Paul is using this very similar language of binding and freedom to give us an ex another example of when a spouse is not bound. A spouse is not bound by the marriage covenant when the spouse is abandoned by their partner. Again, not bound is freedom language. The person is free to remarry, but only in the Lord. In fact, many of the divorce certificates that would be given out at that time would literally say on them, free to marry. This woman would be given a certificate of divorce, and it would say, free, she is free to marry any man. Paul says that, but clarifies it, only in the Lord. Okay? In other words, they must be a Christian. One last thing, verses 15 to 16, Paul says, the reason a believer ought to let the unbeliever depart if they want out is because God has called Christians to live in peace. And then verse 16 offers an explanation for the reason. Paul says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what Paul's saying is, you don't know if your husband or wife will be saved through your efforts to evangelize. And so it's okay to let them go and marry again if they divorce you. God has called his people to live in peace. If a believer continues to view themselves as married to an unbeliever after that person is long gone and is constantly pressing and pressing and trying to be reunited, that doesn't make for peace. It's constant tension. God has called us to live in peace. So, again, to wrap up what we've seen in 1 Corinthians 7... Paul starts with the general principle given by the Lord Jesus, and as we'll see, given in a very specific context to a very specific question. Um, a believer ought not divorce their spouse. And then Paul nuances it. If you get divorced by your spouse, who is not a believer, and I would add, or a Christian who is acting like an unbeliever and walks away from Jesus in the church, you are free to marry, remarry. You is, the husband or wife is not bound in those circumstances. Bound by what? Bound by the marriage bond. Now, here's an important question. If these verses were all we had on divorce and remarriage in the Bible, you might think it was never okay for a person who is a believer to pursue a divorce in cases where a marriage covenant had been broken in attempts at restoration renewal have been rejected. And I don't think that's a necessary conclusion from Scripture, both in the Old and New Testaments. Um, so we'll be looking at that in a few minutes. But before we look at the words of Jesus about divorce and remarriage and that concept, is it ever okay for a Christian to pursue a divorce when a covenant is broken? We'll talk about the whole idea of a marriage covenant marriage covenant. In the Bible, a covenant is a binding relationship of obligations and commitments, things you must do and you swear to do, that two people willingly enter into. It's the basic definition of a covenant. A binding relationship of obligations and commitments that two people willingly enter into. 
There are a lot of different covenants in the Bible. Covenants between two individuals, covenants between two groups of people, and covenants between individuals and groups of people and God. And the Bible describes marriage as a covenantal agreement between a man and a woman. Among the biblical authors, Malachi makes this point the clearest when he actually calls marriage a covenant. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. There he writes this, Malachi 2, verse 14. I've got that on your handout if you'd like to look at it. Um, we'll be coming back to Malachi in a few minutes. Yahweh, the Lord, is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. This isn't the only place marriage is described as a covenant. The writers of the Old Testament regularly use the image of marriage, the picture of marriage, to portray the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. For example, prophets like Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 3 or Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 16, they both portray Israel's unfaithfulness to her covenant relationship with God as a spiritual adultery. So Israel is in relationship with one God, and when she cheats on him with other gods, that's adultery. That's the imagery that the prophets use. And in Jeremiah 3, which I've included at the bottom of your paper, well, again, we'll circle around to that, God himself actually divorces Israel for her spiritual adultery that keeps happening again and again. In other words, Israel flirted with and whored after other gods and broke her covenant relationship to the Lord. A covenant called a marriage in Ezekiel 16. But God never breaks his covenant with humans to go off and marry some other nation. No, in the Bible, it's humans who constantly break covenants with the Lord. This is why God calls humans to be covenant keepers in marriage, to be like him, his image bearer. It's because our covenant keeping reflects the nature of God himself. But a marriage covenant can be broken. You see that in Jeremiah 3. It can be broken when the covenant agreements are broken. And the offers of renewal and restoration and return to me, return, are met with deceit and refusal to return and be faithful once more. This, so marriage is a covenant, and this brings us to our third point. Marriage covenants can be broken. We've already seen one way that a marriage covenant can be broken. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 7 when his spouse is abandoned by an unbeliever. At the essence of a marriage, and Jesus is going to say this in Matthew, is that the husband leaves his wife and is devoted or cleaves to his wife, leaves his parents, cleaves to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So what would break that? Abandonment. That's Paul's logic here. Leaving breaks the covenant bond. And anyone at that time would recognize the language of bond, bound, and freedom as free to marry again because the covenant has been broken. And Paul adds at the end of 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, that it must be in the Lord. Now, there's another action that breaks the marriage covenant, and Jesus spells it out in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. I'll look at each text. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. It has been said, and here Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 24, a super important passage. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, before... I explain Matthew 5 and what's going on in Deuteronomy 24. Let's look at something very similar Jesus says. Matthew 19, 3-9. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? I you remember that phrase. It's important. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? That command is found in Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So in both cases here, Deuteronomy chapter 24 is the background. It's what Jesus references in Matthew 5 and what the Pharisees bring up in Matthew 19. It was a hotly debated text back then and today. And I don't have time to unpack it all, um, but we'll dive in for now. I also want to pause and say, I, I have in front of me an old version of my notes, um, not the ones that I most recently did. I'm God's sovereign over that. So I'm trying to remember some, I made some tweaks and adjustments and try to make things more clear uh, oh, yesterday afternoon, evening, and this morning. Uh, but you're getting the less clear version um, in the sovereignty of God. So you can pray for me that the Lord will help me clarify. I'm a notes guy. And uh, anyway, I don't know why it didn't update with the latest version. Um, but we'll keep plowing through. So anyhow, side note there. Uh, I'm trying not to get people lost. Because as you look at that text and there's a handout in front of you, you're like, man, we've got arrows going all, all over the place. Deuteronomy 24. It's a big deal. Let's read it. If a man marries a woman who, literally the text says, <coughs> fails to find grace in his eyes. That is a wooden translation. He doesn't find grace because he finds something unclean, or your translation may have indecent about her. Something wrong with her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce. And if he gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband, literally, it's hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce, and gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or even if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So, what we have here is a case law from Deuteronomy. A case law is a law that's like a specific case that happened. Maybe this only happened a few times, right? But this is a case that happened that would be written down in Israel's law code as an example of wisdom in action that could be applied to other cases. So, case law. And here's one of these principles in the case. A lady needed a certificate of divorce from a husband who didn't show her grace. And she can prove that she didn't just abandon the guy. She's eligible for remarriage. It protects her. Now, a phrase I told you to remember as we're reading this, the something indecent phrase, it's only a phrase that occurs twice in the whole Hebrew Bible. So in Jesus' day, and even today, there's a debate. What does this indecent thing that this guy finds about this woman be? Because the Pharisees felt like whatever was wrong with her that this husband in uncovered that was wrong, that is grounds for divorce, obviously. Moses allows it. So if you can find that wrong with your wife, whatever it is, you better hope your wife, if you want out, if you want to get rid of your wife, you better hope your wife has this thing. Because then Moses says it's okay. So that basically created two camps of rabbis in Israel who argued about what this thing was. Some said it was some sort of sexual immorality. So whether you, it really was the truth or not, you could accuse your wife of sexual immorality, say, she's indecent, and see ya. I'm off to marry someone else. Okay? The other group said it was for any and every reason. 
So literally the sky's the limit. This un indecent thing is totally relative to what the husband feels is indecent or unclean or just, eh, I don't like you. Um, burning the toast would be an example. You burn my toast one more time, woman. I'm going to marry someone else. And she happens to be prettier than you anyway. And so I'll send you away. And the, the rabbis viewed this as Moses commanding divorce over some unclean thing and giving your wife a certificate of divorce. But Jesus says that is not what's happening. What is happening is Moses is regulating something tragic, putting the brakes on something tragic that is already happening in Israel, stopping it at two guys. So it doesn't go again and again and again. What's tragic here? You have a man who refuses to show his wife grace. This is so important of a translation. He's literal. He fails, she fails to find grace in his eyes. Why? Because his eyes have seen something about her that he's not going to cover with grace. What does he see? What does he find? This is tricky. There are this indecent thing that he finds. There are only two places in the entire Bible where those two words occur together. This passage and one page before, Deuteronomy chapter 13, 23, verse 14. Deuteronomy 23, verse 14. And in that section of the scriptures, God commands Israel, don't just leave your excrement willy-nilly about the camp. Cover it up, for the Lord walks in the camp and doesn't want to see any unclean thing, any indecent thing, okay? So it's not talking about a moral uncleanness. One page later that this man finds. No, there is something unclean, gross, about this woman that's uncovered. What might that be? Well, perhaps a flow of blood that would make her always in a state of uncleanness and relations with her difficult or impossible. A man who divorces a woman for this reason and sends her away, failing to show her grace because his heart is hard, according to Jesus, is using the legal loophole right to get a new wife. And this was happening in Israel. And Moses viewed it as adultery and regulates it, saying, when this happens, and this wife goes to another man and marries that man, while she's still technically married in God's eyes to the first man, she hasn't done anything wrong to break the marriage covenant. When that happens... Technically, she's become an adulterer. This is an adulterous relationship. And he stops it there. If the second husband then hates her, you see, hates, dislikes is too soft of his word there. It's literally if he hates and divorces, which is going to be really important. The translations that soften that make you miss a connection in Malachi. That's really key. Hates and divorces. Malachi the prophet is going to reflect back on this many years later and say the Israelites were still doing this. They're hating and divorcing their wives for whatever reason. Okay? The one who does that is committing adultery, though in a way that Moses is here regulating, putting a check on it. But, okay, this is not commanding it. Moses is not commanding divorce here. He's not command, as the Pharisees were saying, for this, whatever this unclean thing is, we got the green light from Moses to get rid of the one who burned our toast or the one who we said was unfaithful, but really I just saw her look sideways at somebody in church and I'm, you know, now I'm going to divorce her because she's indecent. Um, th this is the type of thing when they're happy. When you wanted an out for your relationship, you began to load all kinds of meaning into this indecent word. What does that mean? 
but it's not what was going on. It's because of their hard hearts. Jesus is protecting the lady from being pounded back between men like a ping pong ball. And we could say a lot more about that. But I, I want to sh show you in Malachi 2 the prophetic, Malachi's prophetic word about what's happening in Deuteronomy 24. And not all translations are going to pick up on this, but the NIV nails it. Malachi, and I've worked through this in Hebrew, I think the NIV, I am with the NIV here, okay? I've looked at these verses. I think when you see Malachi is quoting Deuteronomy 24, they do a great job. The NIV does. Be on your guard, Malachi 2, 15 to 16, and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Now, some older translations say the Lord hates divorce. That is a possible interpretation. I do not think that's what it's saying here. I think he's quoting Deuteronomy 24. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So what Malachi is describing here is what the second husband did in the case law, which is basically what the first husband did as well in a different way. Failing to show grace, hating and divorcing. Same thing. Malachi calls it essentially adultery. So I believe Jesus reads Deuteronomy 24 through the lens of Malachi the prophet. Jesus views the prophets and the law as speaking in unison. And he reads the Bible as helping us understand the Bible. Did you know that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible? Ever. <clears throat> Malachi is a commentary on Deuteronomy 24. And Malachi sees what's going on here as unfaithfulness. And God putting a stop to it by regulating it through Moses. It's not lawful to divorce your wife for any and every reason. However, Jesus does agree that sexual immorality is grounds for divorce. That's why he says it both in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. But I do not think Jesus draws this from Deuteronomy 24. That is not what Deuteronomy 24 is teaching. Jesus, I think, draws this from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and other passages in the Old Testament where God himself sends Israel, his people, away with a certificate of divorce for her unfaithfulness to him. So listen to the words of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. I have that at the bottom of your paper there. Which, by the way, Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, starts off by quoting Deuteronomy 24. All roads take you back to Deuteronomy 24. This is such an important passage. Verse 6, during the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, Have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me, but she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. So here we see the Lord symbolically divorcing the portion of his people Israel, the northern tribes, because of their sin. Sending them away to be scattered among the nations to this very day. Not because God's heart is hard, but because Israel has been unfaithful to him. To say that divorce happens because, always happens because both people have hard hearts is not true. Unless you want to call God a hard-hearted God. The point here is that sexual immorality breaks the covenant of marriage and is grounds for sexual separation and divorce. There's one other Old Testament passage that deals with divorce. And it's a passage that's actually alluded to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. We already talked about that a couple weeks ago about husbands and wives fulfilling their marital duties, obligations, covenant obligations to each other. That's Exodus 21, verse 10 to 11, which I have on there, on your handout. In this passage, there's another situational case law 
for ancient Israel from which principles of wisdom can be gleaned. A man marries a slave girl, then takes another wife on board. Back then, the Lord did not permit, forbid polygamy in the ancient world, though it was not the Genesis 1 ideal of one man and one woman. What God did do was regulate the practice of polygamy to protect vulnerable women from abuse. In Exodus 21, 10-11, the Lord writes this, If he, this man, marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights, or sex. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So here, there seems to be another way that a marriage covenant is legally broken in the law of Moses. Failure of a husband, here in this case, to nurture and provide for a spouse to care for her would be seen as grounds for the breaking of a covenant to protect this vulnerable party. And I would see abuse as falling broadly under that category. Now, there's so much more that could be said about these things, but I want to move on to the fourth and final point, the hope of covenant renewal. We serve a God who never breaks covenant and who always holds open his hands to covenant breakers with the plea, return to me. Listen to these words to Israel that God speaks in Hosea 14, 1 and 2. Return to Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously. So, friends, even though divorce is permitted because of repeated and unrepentant human sin, the people of God, we ought to be a people who strive for covenant renewal in marriage whenever possible. Divorce truly is the last option for the Lord in his relationship with Israel. See that? Jeremiah 3, when the Lord finally sends his people Israel away to be scattered among the tribes of Assyria and lost forever, it is after a long history of warnings, warnings again and again. He takes them back. You think of the book of Hosea and the story there, taking them back again and again and again. Finally, the God of Israel symbolically gives the nation his certificate of divorce, but continues his covenant through Judah and through the sons of David, leading to Jesus, the faithful covenant-keeping God, who, by his amazing power, will rally all peoples, including those from the scattered tribes, back under his lordship as king. And that is the whole of the scriptures. So when Jesus is talking about divorce and remarriage in Matthew in particular, I want you to know Jesus is, has a specific situation in mind, a specific context. <coughs> the Pharisees and the Jews of that day were using Deuteronomy 24 and their wrong interpretation of it to say we we have Moses's green light to divorce our wives and basically make them the victims of our adultery legally okay we can send them away because we find something wrong with them and Jesus is saying Moses did not say that law so you could divorce your wives he said that because your hearts were hard. And he was putting us, he was hitting the brakes. And then Jesus said, because from the beginning it was not so. And then he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be 
united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That is the ideal. And the laws of Moses are on a trajectory taking us back to the Genesis ideal. After Genesis and the fall into sin, what you have is a spiral into chaos and abuse in relationships on every level. And when God comes in with the law, you have step one of bringing back restoration to the Genesis ideal. And the climax is in Jesus, in his arrival as the new Adam with a new covenant to a new people, the people of God who are in covenant relationship with him. And now, as a church, we have an opportunity to celebrate together what many have called our covenant renewal celebration, where we receive, again, symbolically, the body of Jesus given for us his bride. The covenant renewal ceremony is for all Christians in covenant relationship with Jesus who recognize I am a sinner. And listen, if you have been unfaithful to Jesus this week in any way, guess what? Jesus is faithful to you. That's part of what communion is about. That's part of why we do it every week. Because every week, we need to be reminded, Jesus is for you. Jesus gives himself to you. Even if you didn't give yourself to him faithfully this week, 100%, he gives himself faithfully to you, 100%. Jesus is the covenant-keeping God. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is a covenant renewal ceremony done regularly to remind ourselves of our relationship with Jesus, which is why Jesus lifts up the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a covenant cup. It represents his life given for us. So I'm going to ask if uh, Ben and Ben Beckler, would you brothers come up and pass out the Lord's Supper for us. Let's have a moment of silence as we reflect on Jesus, our covenant-keeping God and his faithfulness. And take this moment as you receive the cup to ask his forgiveness for whatever ways you might have been unfaithful. Jesus is our covenant-keeping God. 
He does not break his word to his people. He sealed it with his blood. He gives himself freely to us. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. For your covenant breaking, I am broken. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are our covenant-keeping God. I thank you, Lord, that as long as we return to you in repentance, you will always forgive. And I thank you for the Spirit who helps us repent with genuine repentance. Lord, we know that that's always the question in broken marriages. Is the repentance really real? Or are they just faking it? So they can get back the life they're losing. Lord, I thank you that you help us as Christians repent with real repentance as we come back to you. We couldn't do it on our own. We, we need your help to truly be sorry about our sins. We need your help to keep returning to you. And that's what the Spirit gives us. And I thank you so much for the Holy Spirit given in the New Covenant. So that in the New Covenant, talked about in Jeremiah and other places in the Bible, you can speak of us, your people. I will betroth you to me forever. No more fear of divorce because we know you by your spirit will keep us. Keep us repenting. Keep us coming back. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us right now to return to you fully with our hearts. Be with us now, I ask, as we go to you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.